0: Morning church. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we have been eager to meet together today for the purpose of worshiping you and we have enjoyed the privilege of doing that already this morning. We've been thankful for the fellowship that we've had and thankful to sing praises to you, thankful to pray to you together, thankful to read your word together and now we are grateful to open your word together. And Father, we're so thankful that passage that we that we find ourselves in this morning grants us the occasion to spend an extended portion of time just considering the truth of the gospel. It is by your grace that we are of the conviction that we as believing Christians need the gospel and many of us who are, troubled this morning, just desperately need to be reminded of the truth, what Christ has done for us. Some are sin sick this morning and so need to once again see the gospel, need to hear it proclaimed. Others are enjoying great blessing in this life right now and need that to be put in the context of a greater blessing, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the eternal blessing that we have in Him. All of us need to hear the gospel this morning. We thank You, Father, that this passage very naturally leads us into the the table together this morning. And so we look forward to all of this and we pray for Your blessing as we do. We ask that Your Holy Spirit would, would guide us in the Word. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We're going to consider verses 12 through 25. Twelve through twenty-five this morning. But to open, we'll we'll just read verses twenty-two through twenty-five. So, as you are finding your place there, if you would stand with me, and we will read those four verses. Mark fourteen, beginning in verse twenty-two, and reading through twenty-five. Mark fourteen twenty-two. And as they were eating, he took bread. You may be seated. Now, if your Bible is like mine, you likely have a a section title there that says something like the Institution of the Lord's Supper. And if we're just reading that title, we may automatically file these verses away as if Mark's purpose for including this scene is just to give us information about a new ordinance. I would suggest that Mark's purpose is a bit deeper than that. Jesus is about to go to the cross, and this scene pictures what that means for those who have faith in Him. Using language that is pregnant with significant Old Testament allusions, Jesus indicates that a new covenant is coming in His suffering, and that those who trust in Him participate in the benefits of that suffering and New Covenant. By faith, the disciples are made partakers of Christ. The, the context shows that this revelation comes right on the heels of a prediction of Judas's betrayal of Jesus, prompting each of us this morning to consider, am I a partaker of Christ? Am I a by-faith participant in the New Covenant? At the end of our service this morning, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper together, so please consider this message to be an extended time of preparation for that supper. You'll You'll recall that from chapter 14 on, everything that happens, either prepares for or accomplishes or follows from, Jesus' death. So these are His final hours that we are reading about. Last time we saw a woman engaging in a very costly act of devotion as she prepared Jesus' body for burial beforehand, and that scene was sandwiched in between the chief priests and scribes and Judas conspiring together to see Jesus arrested and killed. Altogether, the passage that we're looking at this morning, verses 12 through 25, Picture once again in symbolic form the great benefit of following Christ in faith and the great and terrible horror of turning away from Him. So the first thing that that, that Mark puts in front of us here in verses 12 through 16 is a plan for the Passover. First of all, we see a plan for the Passover beginning in verse 12. Look there with me. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they had sacrificed And He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as He had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Now, if you have been paying very close attention in recent months, this scene will be like deja vu all over again. You can turn back with me to the beginning of chapter 11. We'll see something very similar Chapter 11, verse 1, chapter 11, verse 1, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of His disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. So we have two very similar scenes, similar sequence, wording, syntax, everything. And in chapter 11... That showed God's sovereignty at work and therefore the gravity behind the statement being made by Jesus entering Jerusalem on that colt. You may remember the statement that was being made there. What was Jesus saying as He entered Jerusalem on that cult? He was saying, I am the promised Davidic king. All of that buildup, Jesus giving those prophetic instructions, and then everything happening is exactly as He said. All of that served to say to us as the readers, hey, pay close attention to this cult thing. This is important. It was important. Jesus is the Davidic king. The same thing is going on here in chapter 14, verses 12 through 16. Go into the city. You'll see a man who looks like this. Follow him to this particular house and say this exact thing to the master of the house. And then he's going to show you an upper room that looks like this. That's where you'll prepare the Passover. And then verse 16 tells us, they found it just as he told them. And just as in verse 11, all of this buildup serves to signal that something significant is going to happen at this Passover meal. What is significant is going to happen at this Passover meal. Well, this has been called the Last Supper, and it is significant for multiple reasons. It is the the last meal that Jesus is going to share with His disciples prior to His Passion. Additionally, it represents a transition among the people of God from remembering one act of salvation to remembering another greater act of salvation. As we considered last time, the Passover meal commemorates the great act of salvation in histories in Israel's history. At the time, the Israelites were slaved, enslaved in Egypt, as you'll remember back in the book of Exodus. As a, as a measure of judgment on the Egyptians and to pressure Pharaoh to let Israel go, God passed through Egypt at night and He killed every firstborn in every. Every firstborn male in every household in Egypt, every household that is, except those households where the blood of a sacrificed lamb had been smeared on the doorpost. So God passed over those homes covered by the blood. He then led the people out of Egypt and He commanded His people then to commemorate that saving event by observing the Passover meal. They were to observe that meal in perpetuity, remembering that act of salvation. The feast of unleavened bread coincided with the Passover meal, and that unleavened bread required the people to eat unleavened bread, which pictured the haste with which they left the land of Egypt. Now, the Passover was that commemoration of that great act of salvation, but in God's sovereign economy the Passover also looked forward to a greater coming salvation. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. We mentioned last time that, that Paul writes that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So the Passover of Exodus looks forward to Christ. Jesus is coming to fulfill that Passover. He is performing a greater exodus at the cross, an exodus from sin and death. And here at this last Passover meal, Jesus is about to signal this transition of the people of God from remembering one act of salvation to remembering this forthcoming ultimate act of salvation. How is He going to signal that transition? Well, He is going to repurpose some of the elements used in the Passover, as we'll see. He's fulfilling the Passover. He's bringing something new. So these two disciples, they go and they prepare the Passover meal. So Mark shows that, that plan for the Passover. Next, Mark predicts, or he shows a prediction of betrayal and damnation. He shows a prediction of betrayal and damnation. Look with me now at at verse 17. And when it was evening... He came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now, What is the purpose of this prediction just prior to sharing the bread and the cup? There there are at least a couple of of purposes. First of all, this highlights the gravity of the betrayal. Jesus is, is about to go and pour out His blood for many. And who is going to hand Him over to that death? Jesus says in verse 18, one who is eating with me. And he, he reiterates the intimacy in verse 20. It is, it is one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread with me in the dish. And though Mark doesn't call our attention to it, it, it recalls Psalm 41.9, revealing the intimacy of, of sharing food. Psalm 41.9 reads, Even my close friend, whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted His heel against me. This is a a terrible betrayal. The second purpose for placing this revelation of betrayal just prior to the sharing of the bread and the cup is that it indicates, and this is very significant, it indicates that not all who play the part are true partakers of Christ. Every indication is that no one played the part Better than Judas. As we've been walking through Mark, we have seen that Judas does not stand out in any way among the twelve. Just like all the others, handpicked by Jesus, walking with Him for three years, gifted for ministry, casting out demons, healing people, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And note again verse 19, they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? Now, we as the readers, because we, we worked through the beginning of chapter 14 last week, we as the readers, we know that it's Judas, but no one in that room had any idea. There, there's no one in that room gesturing to Judas. Nobody knows. They're all saying, it's not me, is it? Nobody knows. Nobody played the part as well as Judas. See, it it is possible to play the game and yet have no participation in Christ. And Judas is Exhibit A. See, many today might say, "I, I go to church every Sunday and I I, I prayed a prayer. I went down front at, at a church. I, I prayed a prayer. I, I give money every week in the offering. and I serve in this ministry or, or that ministry. I never miss a, a prayer meeting. And those things, they're all, they're all great to do. They do not grant you a share in Christ. Have you recognized that you have nothing to offer God but sinful brokenness? Have you surrendered everything that you are to Christ in repentance and faith, trusting in Him alone to save you from the wrath to come? That is the question. Verse 21, Jesus says to the disciples, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. So Jesus is acknowledging that this betrayal by Judas, this is part of God's eternal plan. In fact, other gospel writers, they do cite Psalm 41, which I quoted a moment ago. They cite Psalm 41 as a prophecy about this betrayal. God planned this. As we saw last week, Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28 indicate that everything that is happening to Jesus in these final hours, everything that sinful men are doing to Jesus, all of it happened by the predestined plan of God. And Jesus is acknowledging, this is the path chosen for me. It's written down since Genesis 3.15. The Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. And yet, that this was God's sovereign plan did not lead Jesus to excuse Judas. Look at the rest of verse 21. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Everything happening according to God's sovereign plan, but Judas is culpable for this betrayal. Why is that? Because Judas is doing what he most wants to do. And again, we don't have time to chew through how these two things can be possible, but clearly Jesus says that they are. Jesus has said both in the same breath. God planned this, and Judas is responsible. I say we go with Jesus on this. They're both true. Not only do we have the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man side by side here, but more importantly to this passage, we have side by side the participation, the glory of participation with Christ, which we'll see shortly, and the devastation of being lost in sin which Judas represents for us. The devastation of being lost in sin. From Mark 1.14 on, Jesus has preached, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And, and, and we see in chapters 3 and 6 that even Judas preached this same message. How do we know that? Because he's one of the 12. Chapters 3 and 6 indicate being gifted and sent out to preach that message. And yet Judas, by handing Jesus over to the Jews, he will reject Jesus and His kingdom in the most definitive fashion possible. Contrary to the call of Christ, Judas has not denied himself, taken up his cross and followed Jesus. Rather, he is putting a cross on Christ in exchange for a chunk of change, and he is walking away. It's the opposite of repentance and faith. It's the opposite of self-denial and following Jesus. Rather, Judas is saying, I'm Lord. And consider this, those of you who are partakers of Christ by faith. Do you understand that were it not for God's sovereign grace, you still would share in the lot of Judas? Certainly, as the betrayer of Christ, Judas was a singular figure in salvation history, but as a rebel against God, he's just one among a countless many. A person does not have to betray Jesus to the authorities unto death in order to be outside of Christ. No, all human beings are conceived in sin. The Bible, particularly Paul, describes them as being in Adam. We are conceived in Adam, which means that we we are conceived sharing in the nature and doom of our first father, Adam. What that means is that that just by nature, because we are descended from Adam, we are rebels against God and therefore we are estranged from God and therefore liable to suffer the eternal wrath of God. People are by default in Adam and doomed to hell because of their sin. And so, so we ought not think that because we have not committed the exact crime of Judas... We do not share the lot of Judas. If we we take everything that Jesus said seriously about final judgment, and I highly encourage you to, to, to read through the Gospels, specifically looking for everything that Jesus, the Lord of glory, look for everything that He said about final judgment in hell. If we take all of that seriously, it would be fair to say that not only Judas but everyone in Adam on the last day, it would be fair to say, of all in Adam, it would be better for them if they had never been born. But the good news, great news, is that for everyone still breathing, there is yet hope in Christ, which, which Mark next depicts through a picture of substitutionary sacrifice. A picture of substitutionary sacrifice. This brings us back to verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Now let's just stop right there. They have with them unleavened bread, Now, what does that bread represent at the Passover? Well, this is from Deuteronomy 16. You shall eat no unleavened bread with it, meaning with the Passover lamb. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. So as the people were coming out of Egypt, they didn't have time to prepare food. You can't wait for bread to rise. And so that unleavened bread pictures that, 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 that quick removal from Egypt. They're remembering how quickly God saved them. They moved move when it was time to go. That was the significance of that, of that bread. Well, now Jesus is, is taking that, that part of the, of the Passover meal. He's repurposing it. Jesus now says of that bread... This is my body. No longer pictures haste. This is my body. This is the broken body of Christ. Verse 23, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, in the, in the Passover and in, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread... Wine is not an official part of the festivities, according to the Old Testament, but over the centuries, wine became a part of the tradition, and in in fact, there were specifically four cups of wine that they would drink at specific times in the meal, and scholars believe that this would have been, the, the cup that Jesus is using here, this would have been the third cup of wine in that meal, and Jesus is now repurposing that part of this tradition. He's saying, this is my blood. So Jesus has taken some elements of the tradition, He's repurposed them. The the act of salvation that used to be remembered, the the Passover and the Exodus, which actually pictured the act of salvation that's about to happen, the, the, the atonement, the cross, the cross has now eclipsed the picture, which is why we don't observe the Passover anymore. We remember the ultimate act. That that old act of salvation is no longer commemorated. The ultimate act of salvation in Christ, we continue to remember that. Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant. And I I would suggest to you that these things that Jesus is saying, this, this is my body, and in particular, this is my blood of the covenant, With those words, light bulbs would have been going off for the disciples. As they're familiar with Old Testament texts, they give great meaning and history to those ideas, those words, their their pictures, traditions associated with those words that now Jesus is, is giving fuller meaning to all of those things. The Old Covenant, the Old Covenant... The Sinai Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, was ratified with the blood of animals, half of which, you you can read about this in Exodus 24, half of which was thrown against the base of the altar, half of which was sprinkled on the people. This is how the the Old Covenant was ratified. But that covenant, we find in the Old Testament, was repeatedly broken over and over and over. That's the Old Covenant. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, God promised a new covenant. As you're, as you're reading the Old Testament, you get a sense that a new covenant is needed. This old covenant, is just, it, it, is, it is broken repeatedly. And God promises a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, a better covenant. It's better in a host of ways that we don't have time to enumerate. We'll pick up on, on a couple of things as, as, we, as we read here in Jeremiah 31. I'm going to begin reading in, in verse 31 and read through verse 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, For they shall all know Me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Two problems with the Old Covenant. The people couldn't obey. We find that over and over. And another problem, it it did not provide atonement for sin. It provided pictures of atonement but not actual atonement. This covenant is going to be better in both of those ways. And he says it right here at the very end. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The old covenant actually provides for a constant reminder of sin. As the day of atonement, it comes back over and over and over. It's constantly reminding them that they are in sin, that they need atonement. This covenant is going to provide for forgiveness question is, on what basis could a just God forgive sin? A God who just pardons sin isn't a good God. Where's, where's the justice? The, the key to making this work is the offering of a substitute in the place of sinners, someone to suffer in the place of God's people so that they can be forgiven. And if you have a substitute, the right substitute, well, then God is just, meaning that the sins have been punished, and God can justify sinners. He can declare them righteous. He can declare His people righteous, having forgiven their sin. And this is not just a New Testament innovation, reading things back into the Old Testament, but it's an Old Testament promise. Turn with me now over to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. So Jeremiah promised a new covenant. Isaiah 53 pictures the mechanism. Isaiah 53 pictures this substitute that makes makes forgiveness possible. Pastor Rick already read a portion of Isaiah 53 to us this morning. The passage actually begins late in Isaiah 52. I encourage you to read all of that passage, Isaiah 52 and and through Isaiah 53 on your own time. I'm going to read beginning in verse 4 and and listen to this language of substitution that takes place. And and remember that this is the the Old Testament looking forward. God is saying, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to provide a substitute who is going to stand in the place of my people. Isaiah 53 Verse 4, speaking in the past tense, as if this has already happened, this is how much of a certainty this is, Isaiah 53, 4, surely He, the substitute, surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. For our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the picture of a coming sinless one would be despised and suffer in the place of others so that they might be justified before God. So what have we seen in Jeremiah and then in Isaiah and pictured in, in the, the the old covenant? You have you have an old covenant inaugurated by the shedding of blood. You have the promise of a new covenant providing for forgiveness of sin, forgiveness of sin which can only come through an atoning substitution. Someone has to die for the sins of others in order for them to be forgiven in this new covenant. In Mark 14, Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood of the covenant. The coming cross would be the instrument of Jesus' death, rendering His body lifeless and His blood spilt. And so the bread and the cup are symbols of His coming vicarious suffering. What Jesus is saying here is that I'm the sacrifice. I'm the substitute. My my blood is poured out on behalf of many for this new covenant. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I bring in this new and better covenant, not a covenant where where you are constantly reminded of your guilt before God, but a covenant where your sins are wiped away. And I represent constant, perpetual, everlasting forgiveness and righteousness before God. And I would suggest to you that when He gave them the bread and the cup representing His body and blood, essentially saying to them, eat my flesh, and drink my blood, they would have been startled and they would have known exactly the significance of what He was saying. Why would they have been startled? They would have been startled because repeatedly in the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis 9 and carrying forward, the people of God are told repeatedly, not to eat the flesh with the blood in it. Don't eat the flesh of animals with blood in it. Genesis 9, Leviticus 17, Deuteronomy 12. Don't eat flesh with blood in it. Do not consume blood. Why? Because the life of that animal is in its blood. You can eat flesh drained of blood, but no blood. The blood has to be poured out on the on the ground. You cannot consume The blood, because to consume that blood, would be to take in the life of that animal. Don't do that. And a very clear connection is made for us in John 6. You might write down John 6. I encourage you to read John 6 in its entirety in your own time this afternoon. John chapter 6, using these same metaphors, John 6, 53, Jesus says this, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, for for, forever, the people have heard, don't eat the blood with that flesh. No blood. Do not consume blood. And now Jesus is saying, eat my flesh. Drink my blood. Why? So that you have my life in you. Now, that might lead some to conclude, Wow, this is fantastic news. All I need to do then is just to come and consume this this bread and to drink this cup and and then I'll have eternal life in Christ. Might make sense to us. But no. If you read John 6 in its context, it is clear that Jesus does not mean literally eating His flesh or drinking His blood, nor does Jesus mean that there is saving benefit to eating bread or drinking the cup, but rather... Eating the flesh of Christ and drinking the blood of Christ is the metaphorical expression of participating in His saving work by believing in Him. Eating bread and drinking the cup pictures our by faith participation in Christ. You see, it's believing, not eating and drinking. Believing is how we receive the gift of salvation. Let me give you just a few references right there in John chapter 6 that indicate that that it's about believing, trusting in Christ. John 6.29, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You can hear Him equating. He's showing, He's interpreting for us what He means by Eating is flesh. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6.40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6.47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes as eternal life. When Jesus gives that metaphor in John 6, eat my flesh, drink my blood, speaking again of these, these symbols of, 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 of bread and drink, He's talking about believing in Him unto salvation. Now, we've noted in the past that John, John actually holds forth two different kinds of belief. There is a kind of merely cognitive belief that agrees with facts about Jesus that, that, that all, almost a large majority, we'll say that, a large majority of people in our culture would hold this kind of belief about Jesus. It's the kind of belief held by people in John chapter 8, the people who tried to kill Jesus by stoning Him. It's merely cognitive belief that agrees with facts, but then there is what we might call saving belief. And saving belief is what the Scriptures associate with repentance, surrendering, to Christ as Lord, trusting Him, trusting His atonement for our sin to make us right with God the Father. When we trust in Christ, we become participants, partakers of, sharers in His life, death, and resurrection. His atoning death and its removal of sin and guilt, it becomes ours and His righteous record of obedience and its eternal reward becomes ours. We are in Christ and He is in us. And so Jesus is saying to the disciples, here, you need my life. Again, is eating that bread going to save them? Is drinking that cup going to save them? Certainly not. what, what, What is an obvious way that we know that? Judas is in the room. Judas eats. Judas drinks. And Jesus has just said it would have been better for Judas to have never been born. Those elements aren't saving anybody. They're a picture. Eating and drinking, they picture our by-faith participation in Christ's atoning work. When we participate, when we partake of the bread and the cup, we're remembering what Christ has done And we are celebrating the sufficiency, not of the cup and the bread, but of the sacrifice of Christ to atone for our sins, secure our forgiveness, and to unite us with Him in one body. Now, one final thing that we find here in this passage is a promise of the Lord's return. A promise of the Lord's return. Verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So, think about what this assumes. It assumes. Jesus has made the assumption. Jesus believes. Jesus knows not only that He is going to go and pour out His life for many, but that he is going to rise again and that he is going to come back and enjoy a glorious future with his people. Acts chapter 1 records the Lord ascending to heaven after his resurrection, and this statement from the Lord is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11:26, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That is, until He comes again. The very first time the Lord's Supper was shared, Jesus vowed the next time that He drank the fruit of the vine would be in the coming kingdom. So when we partake, we remember that promise and we look forward, we look forward to drinking it with Him when He returns. The Lord is returning and that is the great hope of the believer. You know, it is is instructive to note that the very next next passage here in Mark 14 shows Jesus predicting that the other 11 disciples are going to abandon Him in His hour of need. All of them. They're all going to abandon Him in His hour of need. And He is going to go to the cross alone. He's going to the cross alone alone to atone for sin, not in spite of how they've treated Him, but because of how they've treated Him. This this is precisely why they need a Savior, precisely why we have needed a Savior. Now, what makes the eleven who abandoned Jesus in His arrest, what makes them different from Judas, we might ask? Jesus predicted that Judas would betray Jesus. He then predicts the others will abandon Him. All of that happens. Why is Judas condemned? And the others will become the pillars of the church. What's the difference? Judas is a a case of apostasy. He completely walks away from the Lord. The others will follow the risen Christ in faith. And that is the difference. Which prompts us to ask again, What about you? What about me? Are you in Adam? Or are you in Christ? Are you still walking in the the way of Adam? Still still living out the the desires of, of the flesh? Following after sin headlong and headed toward an eternity of wrath? Or have you... Turned from that sin and and recognized that only in Christ, only in His righteousness, His atoning work in the cross, in His life-giving resurrection, only in Christ do you have hope on the last day to be reconciled to the Father. Are you a participant in Christ by faith? You may have questions about that. You are sitting in a room full of people who could answer those questions. I encourage you not to leave this place this morning without asking those questions and getting those answers. Anyone would be happy to talk to you. Any of the elders would be happy to talk to you. Just don't leave with those questions unanswered. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for the truths that we've seen. We thank you for the the atonement of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that not only did you promise it long ago, but that you fulfilled it. We thank you, Father, that Jesus sits at your right hand even now and that he eagerly awaits a return as we do. Father, we look forward to that day when we can drink the cup anew. We thank you, Father, that in the coming moments we have the opportunity, the the glorious blessing of, of remembering what Christ has done and looking forward to his return by proclaiming his death until he comes. We pray, Father, that as we do so, you would grant us to do it soberly and with great joy. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.